0: And so what we've got to do is recognize that love itself is not the power. The power of love is in God. That's what we have to see. The power of love is in the place where the nature of love comes from, which is in the triune God. And that's what we as Christians have to recognize whenever we think about the power of love. It's time for Three Chords and the Truth. In these special episodes of The Apologetics Podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I go looking for God's truth in the movies and in the music that have captured our imagination. To learn more about The Apologetics Podcast,
1: visit theapologeticspodcast.com at an internet
0: near you. To receive our free newsletter, go to theapologeticsnewsletter.com.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on this special Three Chords in the Truth episode of The Apologetics Podcast.
0: I'm Timothy, and tonight I am going to see Hamilton, but my favorite musical is and always will be Wicked. Uh, And I'm Garrick. I can't
1: pick a favorite musical theater show, but I've also seen Hamilton recently, and I'm... Super excited to nerd out with Timothy tomorrow after he goes to the show.
0: Well, today is a special Three Chords and the Truth edition of the Apologetics podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Huey Lewis and the News and the song The Power of Love. That's our focus for today, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News from 1986. 86? 86? 1986. That year, exactly. That year, 1986, that year of Top Gun, of Back to the Future, of all that was good and wonderful in music. That's right. the year of infamy.
1: <laughs> if only we could go back. You know, last night, Timothy, trying to start a new kind of fun rhythm in my family, I just got back from a backpacking trip in Colorado and... And there's kind of this wonderful thing about going on a trip like that where, you know, you're disconnected from the world and you have no electronics with you. And the whole week, you're just kind of sitting in circles with people with nothing to do and no entertainment. And yet your time and your experience is full and it's rich. And And so I really wanted to come home and, and just be better at home about gathering in circles, right? Instead of around a a glowing rectangle of some sort. So last night, we did that eating dinner together and broke out some meal questions, which is a thing that we did on the backpacking trip. And one of those questions was if you could relive one year. And I just wish I wish I would have thought of <laughs> 1986. I wish I could relive 1986, you know, cuz I didn't know what I had in 1986, right? I was 8 years old. I didn't I didn't know the glory that I was living in at that age.
0: Well, before we talk about Huey Lewis and the news and the power of love and the glories of 1986, we are going to do behind the covers, behind the covers. Now, if you all will remember, Behind the covers is this moment where we look at a song that has been covered by multiple individuals or groups. And we determine which cover of that song is the best. And the one we're looking at today is Some Kind of Wonderful, which Garrick thought was originally done by Grand Funk Railroad. And uh, we have discovered it wasn't.
1: Yeah, me and like... Probably everyone else in the world who's heard the song, right? I mean, <laughs> I feel like that's the only version
0: I had ever heard. Yeah. I think almost all of us have. And it was originally, though, done by the Soul Brothers, and I didn't know this for a long, long time either. So it's done by this band called the Soul Brothers Six in 1967.
1: She got a sight, don't you know she? She's some
0: kind of
1: wonderful. Yes, she is. She's some kind of wonderful it
0: only hit number 91 on the Billboard charts, and so it didn't do necessarily very well, but it was the song in 1967 by the Soul Brothers Six, and as unfortunately often happened all the way through the eras of early rock and roll, often a song would be written and originally performed by an African-American group and then that song would then be co-opted later by a white artist or white group and it would actually be a hit that was a, a pattern that we see repeated all the way through the 1950s, 1960s in particular and this was one of those songs that it originally comes from very shaped by the soul music tradition which was in turn shaped by the African-American church tradition so that's shaped by that, it comes out of that you see that and then it is later on covered by Grand Funk Railroad in 1974 on their album, All the Girls in the World Beware, three exclamation points, not one, (laughs) not two, but three exclamation points on Grand Funk Railroad's album, All the Girls in the World Beware. So it's like the early Van Halen, I think it was on their third album, they had Everybody Wants Some, two exclamation points. (laughs) So it's kind of the same thing right there.
1: It's the American version of the umlaut, right? Like, just, <laughs> just put it in there. doesn't
0: matter its usage. Just throw it in there. And so we have Grand Funk Railroad, 1974, on this album, All the Girls in the World Beware, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. It hit number three, the same as the number of exclamation points on it, hit number three on the Billboard Hot 100. And so 1974 was this cover of it from Grand Funk Railroad. What do you think of that one? Let's talk about that one, just the comparison there between the original and that initial cover by Grand Funk Railroad. So they are very similar. I mean, so the thing about Covers is that they can be
1: wildly different or really kind of close to the original. And most of the covers that you listen to of this song are pretty close to the original. In fact, mostly, I think the biggest differences, I mean, aside from the variation of voices, but the biggest differences of most, again, we'll kind of mention one that it was very different, but the biggest differences were the number and variety of instruments used, right?
0: And they've got that organ part toward the last half of the grand funk one. And that, as I think about that organ part and how it interplays what I really liked in a later version, 1994, by Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> so they did it in 1994 on their album, Four Chords, and several years ago, they did a cover of this particular song, Some Kind of Wonderful. What I really liked that they took a step in a different direction or in a further direction is – where the original had a little bit, and Grand Funk Railroad certainly had some organ in there. Huey Lewis and the News had a brass section. Oh, you know the kind of kind of and then we also ran across one by. Rod Stewart. A mm. Rather uninspiring. It's got a little bit of an interesting guitar part that does this kind of fuzzy thing, but there's really not much there that anybody is going to want to listen to. Yeah. I
1: learned so much when preparing for this episode. One of those things was that Rod Stewart was still making music. And he was still alive. I <laughs> wasn't even sure about true, that. That's true. <laughs> so he comes out with this album in 2021 called Tears of Hercules. For some reason, that album title just kind of struck me funny. And yeah, Timothy and I would both say, like, if we're being completely transparent, we would both tell you that we really haven't listened to Rod Stewart since Forever Young. I love Forever Young, right? That's like my childhood. And I vividly remember the music video. And but I've just never been a Rod Stewart guy. And I think that's okay. Can I get
0: a witness? Play some guitar for me here one time. Now, the two that we looked at, you brought one to my attention that I had not seen or heard before, but the two that were just incredible, they both were, is Joss Stone, which is the one I wasn't aware of this one. You brought that one to my attention. And then Little Milton. I'm a big Little Milton fan. All right. Both of these covers are actually just incredible. Joss so Stone good. and Little Milton.
1: Joss Stone's is the one that I kind of hinted at earlier. It's the one that is extremely different from the original. It's a kind of a whole new take. My baby, he's all right. Me and my baby, we're so tired. Don't you know he
0: is uh, some kind? We do have to talk about Mark (laughs) Farner's version. Now, Mark Farner was the lead vocalist of Grand Funk Railroad. He, praise God for this, okay, latter part of the 20th century, he became a Christian. And when Mark Farner became a Christian, he didn't feel like he could sing some kind of wonderful in exactly the wonderful way he had for many years. And so, instead, he changed the words of it so that it is not about a woman to whom you are faithful and in love with. It is now about Jesus is your some kind of wonderful I mean, it sounds exactly like Grand Funk Railroads, as you might expect, because he is Grand Funk Railroad, but it's the worst example of a Jesus juke. <laughs> yeah, I don't know Farner's story.
1: I don't know his conversion and kind of like what his stream of Christian tradition became. But it, it is this unfortunate version of Christ against culture, right, where There's no redemptive value of parts of culture, and so therefore we have to either separate ourselves from it or we have to completely Christianize it. No room for common grace, no room for nuance and recognizing the good and the true and the beautiful in the created order if something isn't distinctly Christian. And so Mark changes words and the subject and it's not wonderful <laughs> it's not wonderful right and, and it's not it's not the changing of the words it's the here's this piece of christian art right you're now calling this a piece of christian art and it's not excellent right it's like a bad christian movie right that a non-christian would watch and say hey this is this is just not well done and and that's When Christians make pieces of art, it ought to be excellent. It ought to really reflect and shine the glory of God. And this is just taking an an okay version of a song and changing some words. And I don't want to come off as overly critical. It's just, it was a bit cringy, I guess, is the best way to put it.
0: Yeah, to me, it's the musical equivalent of those t-shirts that our youth groups used to wear when you and I were both youth ministers where it would be like a Reese's peanut butter cup, except with Jesus that they would change the logo, or it would be the Starbucks logo, except about Jesus. And they would take all of these logos, I mean, you remember them too, all these logos and put them on t-shirts that were these the world's logos, but they would change it to be about Jesus. And to me, that's what this song is. It's saying, we can't just in enjoy what is beautiful and good or what is praiseworthy or what is useful in the world around us we can't do that we have to slap jesus on it and that's the type of thing we're seeing in this particular song
1: yeah because i guarantee you that adam would have sung some kind of wonderful as soon as eve was created and he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had to change any words because praising this gift of eve was
0: praising god But one of our favorite supporters, Aaron Tant, who is from Indiana, he's a Hoosier like Garrick once was, and he has asked us to do an episode on The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News.
1: A ton of his songs, but I just haven't created a playlist with him on it.
0: So yeah, but then there was this discovery. So go ahead, Timothy. You tell him. <laughs> well, about, first off, it is strange. I will admit, for me to like Huey Lewis at all, Huey Lewis in the news is not in my typical, not type anywhere close, nothing to your genre makeup, right? Like, not anywhere close. It is not. I mean, I am, at the same time when Huey Lewis really hits it big, I am listening to heavier and heavier and heavier music. I'm listening to Def Leppard. I'm moving in the direction of Metallica. I'm listening to Striper, all of that. And in the midst of this, in 1986, when I start hearing Huey Lewis in the news, he's coming out with these songs, Stuck With You, Doing It All For My Baby, all these things like this. I mean, these songs that are all about, even Whole lot of Love off of the four album, all of these songs are all about this sort of faithful love to one person, blue collar hard work. Yes. yes. about, though, how different this was from the other songs that were on the charts at the same time in 1986. Take My Breath Away by Berlin. You Give Love a Bad Name. Take Me Home Tonight. Talk Dirty to Me by Poison. That's what else is on. And when you start thinking about these songs, you realize how odd Hubie Lewis was, even in 1986. I mean, that, his did not fit In 1986, it doesn't just not fit with my playlist. It doesn't fit with anybody's playlist in 1986. And he really starts having these big hits in the mid 80s in ways that don't fit with anything else. These songs that are primarily focused, a lot of them on faithful love for a man and a woman. It was just different. And the oddity is, is that for me at that time, even though I was listening to all this other stuff, too, it was like that's somehow appealing just because it's different. It's just this different, this very rootsy, blues-based music that was just appealing. And I think probably, too, it appealed to me at the level, though I didn't realize it at the time, this kind of hourly wage, blue-collar, working-class music. This was my background. This is what I knew. And even if I didn't recognize it, there was something about that that probably appealed to me as well. But here's the funny thing, this brought up the discussion between you and I. For years, I don't think it's quite decades yet, but it's certainly over a decade. I have listened to Huey Lewis every single morning. It comes on when I get up. So I listen to Huey Lewis in the news. And and the reason I started doing this, I don't know how many years ago. It's like I said, it's been a long, long time. And the reason I do this is because it's happy. It's kind of jubilant music. And it helps me think about, okay, what am I doing stuff for today? Okay, what am I doing? I'm doing stuff. I wanna do things for my family. I want to do things for my spouse. It just gets me up with the attitude I want to start the day with. Because the other stuff I listen to, I mean, I love Metallica, but I don't want to listen to Metallica first thing in the morning. It just (laughs) doesn't get me in the right direction. It doesn't get me in the right mood. I also don't want to, I love jazz. I don't want to listen to jazz early in the morning because it makes me want to go back to bed as much as I love jazz. And so Huey Lewis falls in this perfect little spot. It's driving enough to get me up and get me going. And yet it's happy. It gets me thinking about, the things I really want to think about, really want to do in the day. And so, I don't know, for close to 20 years, I've listened to Huey Lewis every morning. I listen to like two Huey Lewis songs every morning when I get up. That's what, and now the way I've got it set is it's on Alexa. Alexa automatically, she shuffles two Huey Lewis songs and will play two songs every single morning when I get up. That's how I get up every morning.
1: (laughs) So friends listening to the show. Timothy and I were six, seven years deep into our relationship. This was about a year ago. So today, by the way, we are recording the show on the day, my one-year anniversary of coming to work here at the Village Church. And so shortly before I left the Kentuckiana area, we recorded a show in Timothy's office. And no idea how this came up, unless it was by that point Aaron had kind of suggested this and, and then brought it up. And, and so I, I discovered this. I discovered this fact about Timothy six to seven years in our relationship. We've had so many conversations about just pointless things and so many music conversations and all that. And I find out after seven years of of a working and a friend relationship, like our families are friends and everything, i discovered this. I hear this and it just blows my mind for so many reasons. One, I can't believe I'd never heard this, never knew this from all the discussions we've ever had. And two, you could have given me a thousand guesses of, hey, what's the one artist, the first thing that Timothy plays when he wakes up in the morning? I would have never come to Huey Lewis. So that was a funny moment. And I'll never not just smile and giggle when I think about that moment of discovery. So I told y'all, I learned a lot in this episode that education process started a year ago before
0: I even came to Texas. Well, Huey Lewis was not born Huey Lewis. He was born Hugh Anthony Craig the 3rd and uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is just,
1: just tough, right? Hugh Anthony Craig the Third and The News. It just doesn't quite have the, <laughs> just like, the I mean, it, would be, it. Even
0: if you go, you know, like Hugh Craig and the Legs or something like that, <laughs> it just doesn't work. No matter what, it doesn't work. He was born 1950 in New York City, and his family, though, then moved to the San Francisco Bay Area when he was a child. So it becomes somewhat like Metallica at that level that that's where his musical start happens, though, again, a very different style of music and a very different direction on that. you got certain bands that are grounded kind of in that San Francisco Bay area. Others, like the Glam Rock was in the Los Angeles area, everything like that. His parents divorced when he was 13 years old, and then his mother had an affair with a beat poet. one of the people from the beat poet generation, that group there. And that really influenced him with that bohemian lifestyle that was being pursued by a lot of that movement right there. But he was a smart kid. He had a perfect score on the math section of the SAT, something that neither Garrick nor I have had. <laughs> and then after he graduated from high school, he hitchhiked across the United States. because hitchhikes across the United States, then stows away on a plane, something you could never do now, but he stows away on a plane and actually does so in Europe as well so he's just kind of travels for a while hitchhikes travels
1: around ultimate gap year right ultimate gap year i mean the experiences he, that he had in that year are probably more than i've had in my 43 years of
0: life so So, he learns to play harmonica during this time. He learns to play music. He starts singing. His first concerts were playing the blues in Madrid. So, there's just something to be said for that. Playing the blues, not in Memphis, but in Madrid. There he is. And then he comes back from that. He enrolls at Cornell University, makes it into the engineering program at Cornell. But then he drops out after one semester. December of 1969, he drops out, and he goes to become a musician. And he joins His first band that he joins as he's developing, trying to kind of work through how to become a musician is a band called Clover is the name of the band. And that's what he started calling himself then Huey Louie, but it was Huey spelled H-U-G-H-I-E. It looks a little more like Huggies than Huey yeah, <laughs> yep. at that point. Yep. But Huey Louie, he starts calling himself Huey Louie.
1: Yeah. Like the French version Louie, right? Yeah, like exactly. right? I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, so he's Huey never Louie. stick. At this and
0: uh, they go to Britain. Uh, he's this band, Clover, that he's in. They go to Britain in 1976. And the band ends up playing on Elvis Costello's first album. And so they become the backing band for Elvis Costello's first album. But remember, Huey Louie is a harmonica player. And as a harmonica player, they are not really any parts on that for him. And so in his own words, he says, all the harmonica that is not on Elvis Costello's first album was played by me <laughs> that's something to put on your resume <laughs> exactly and you kind of get a glimpse of what you start to see in Huey Lewis's personality just sort of this self-effacing funny roll with it type of an idea you just see that all the way through like every time I see him in an interview I'm like I don't know if this guy's a great musician but I would just love to hang out with him I know he's I just know. a fun guy to hang out with he really seems like that uncle that Everybody loves and that everybody is slightly embarrassed by at every family reunion.
1: (laughs) As soon as I discovered Timothy's love for Huey Lewis, I told him about this. So a show that I watched a lot, and I'm okay if you judge me for this. I've watched most of the TV show Blacklist with James Spader because I'm I'm just a huge fan. James Spader fan. And there is this show. It's one of the favorite shows that they ever recorded. And it is much more lighthearted. So there's a character who's a bit character here and there through the first several seasons. And and the actor actually died. And they decided to work that into a show and kind of and really kind of make a, a memorial show for this actor. And the character i trying not to do too many spoilers, but the character of the TV show had this ongoing funny thing about Huey Lewis. So Huey Lewis makes this cameo in this episode, and it's just fantastic. He makes a cameo as himself, and I just got to think, just completely being himself, and it's exactly that. The funny thing is, is that in the show, they did this amazing job of you get the fun, good, clean, fun, lighthearted Huey Lewis. And there's a moment where you get to see the depth of Huey Lewis, which is not something that people think about. That even when we go through his bio, you can tell there's always been a depth there. The guy's brilliant, right? And has has had some amazing life experiences before he ever became a musician. And so anyways, that was a, a really f- fun episode that showed the true Huey
0: Lewis is what I like to like to think. <laughs> And he forms a band called Huey Lewis and the American Express. Not Visa, not MasterCard, but American Express. And in 1979, as we might imagine, when they signed with a record company, the record company told them, We do not want to get sued by American Express. And so you are going to become Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> And they really then broke out with the album Sports in 1983, Working for a Living, I Want a New Drug, This Is It. I mean, ah, there's great songs right there. And that's where they really fall into this mode that they stay in, really, their whole careers of this blue-collar, working man's rock and roll, the exact opposite of the glam metal that was on the rise at that time. I mean, that the glam metal with all the outfits and the showiness and this appeal to, A different demographic. They're just trying to appeal to the guy that gets up and has an hourly wage job and is just working and being faithful. That's who they're trying to appeal to. And they do. And that same year, 1983, Huey Lewis gets married. In that year, he participates a couple of years later in We Are the World. So he's one of the singers, one of the soloists on We Are the World with the USA for Africa. And then comes 1986. This wasn't the first time one of their songs had been in a film. It was just the first time one of their songs had been in a film legally. <laughs> because <laughs> in 1984, their song, I Want a New Drug, what they had done during the filming of the movie and the the soundtracking of the movie Ghostbusters is the producers of this had used their song I Want a New Drug as just a background during everything to try to pace the movie and pace the music and so they used that all the way through. But then they needed to have a song written for the movie. And so when the guy that wrote the song did it, he basically just copied I Want a New Drug. And the song Ghostbusters actually is a complete ripoff, especially of the bass line and some of the melodic structure as well of I Want a New Drug. And so there was a big lawsuit after this, and it was discovered that, yes, they had stolen from Huey Lewis and the News for the song Ghostbusters. In 1986 came their first legitimate song in a movie, their first legal usage of one of their songs in a movie, and that was Back to the Future. So, I mean, what are your memories of Back to the Future? Gosh, what are my memories? I mean, I wish
1: I could remember the first time that I saw it, but
0: it's almost like Back to the Future has just always existed. I've grown up with it. It is so influential culturally. Even, I mean, I love the references to it in the Avengers when they talked about that that's not how time travel works, yes, everything like yes. that. It's a such a deeply scene. influential movie in so many ways. And it's just a blast in that movie. What people may not know is that Huey Lewis is actually in Back to the Future. That teacher who says to Marty McFly, hold it, fellows, I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. That is Huey Lewis himself as a teacher in the movie Back to the Future. Which (laughs) you can
1: totally picture him as an actual teacher. That's the funny thing, right? Yes, Yes. Like, he could have been. A high school teacher.
0: <laughs> he could have taught math. He could Abs- have been a high school yeah, math
1: teacher. Definitely could have, definitely could have taught math. <laughs> Most music of the 80s was fun. But like we said, there's something about Huey Lewis that it was this good, clean fun, at least comparatively so. And so the lyrics of the song, the power of love is a curious thing. I feel like these are all true statements. Make a one man weep, make another man sing. Here's a fun one. Change a hawk to a little white dove. It's more than a feeling. That's the power of love. One of the things about Huey Lewis to me is, again, there's a depth to him that sometimes is just hard to see because what stands out is kind of his fun personality, his goofiness and whatnot. And that's even the case with his lyrics. These are truth claims about what love is. And if they were put in any other mode or mood, if he changed to a minor key, then these are almost like... Contemplative statements about love,
0: very accurate ones in my mind. I mean, what you see, if nothing else, is that for Huey Lewis, love has a transforming power. But not only does it have a transforming power, It's about commitment. He says, power of love will keep you home at night. That idea right there that this is something that involves commitment. And there's also a soteriological component. That is to say, something that saves us. It might just, he says about love, save your life. As you said, these are some truth claims. Love is transforming. Love involves commitment. Love will save you all of these things are actual truth claims that Huey Lewis is making in this particular song. Now, we're not going to go through all the types of love or the definition of love in the sense of the four loves that we've we talk about sometimes because we did that last year on the episode to do with the song I want to know what love is. So make sure and go back and listen to that episode when we talk about the four loves or the four types of love. But what I want to dig into in this segment is what power does love really have and why does love have power? So we've talked about what love is. Let's talk about the power of love. What power does love have and why does it have it? And so we'll just use a real simple definition of love, which is just a deep and committed affection. I think that's a good general definition of love, a deep and committed affection. And so if we think about that, we can ask the question, is there power in love? And the the answer is really simple, yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Is there power in love? Yes and no, there is. And yet at the same time, what we're going to see is the power is not in the love itself. The power is in the source of the love. Love is powerful, but the power is never in the love itself. Yeah, we think about kind of an important text in Scripture,
1: In Ephesians 3, where Paul says, for this reason, which right is always kind of telling us to look back to what Paul had said previously, but for this reason, here's the reason that I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, this fatherhood theme, every family in heaven and on earth is named, or in other words, gets its identity from, right? It's the source of where love comes from, which also for us as believers is also the object of our love. And so the power itself doesn't fall in the affection as much as it does in where this affection comes from and where it's pointed or to whom it's pointed would be a better way of saying it.
0: And I think that text is really important, this one from Paul of, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family or every fatherhood derives its identity. Because what he's saying there, think about this for Paul, he's not just saying Christian families. He's saying every family in heaven and on earth derives its identity, derives all that is good about it from God. And even though he doesn't mention love when Paul writes these words in this particular text— He's getting at a very deep truth about love, and that is to say that whatever is good in love, whether in a family that doesn't know Jesus or a family that does, whether in a relationship where Jesus is rejected or a relationship where Jesus is valued and central, it all comes from anything that is good and beautiful and powerful about that love comes from God, not from the love itself. That's what he's saying right there. It comes from, in this case, the fatherhoods of this world. No matter how messed up they are, no matter how beautiful they are, the fatherhoods of this world, so to speak, come from the fatherhood of God. And the loves of this world ultimately come from God. Any power that love has is derived from the God who, according to 1 John 4, 8, is Love, the love of parents, the love of a husband and wife, whatever it may be, this love comes from God. And that's why, for example, we were talking about earlier Mark Farner's cover of his own song that he had done with Grand Funk Railroad and changing the words of it. That's one of the reasons we were disappointed in that, is because it's almost like he's saying that I have to change it to be about Jesus for it to have a value that I can keep singing the song as a Christian. And what he doesn't recognize in that is that there is a beauty and a value, and it's something that is derived from God. (laughs) If you just sing about your wife in this way and just sing about loving her in this way, there is, because anytime there is love, it is derived from God and Augustine, uh, he's big on this. Augustine said God can only be said to be love because God is a trinity. In other words, what he's saying is the fact that God is love, God has a loving relationship within his own self. That That is something that actually, according to Augustine, reveals the Trinity. He says in his book on the Trinity, if you see love, you are seeing the Trinity. I love that. I love those lines in Augustine. Whenever you see love, somebody loving another person, a parent and a child, a husband or wife, whatever it may be, whenever you see love, you're actually seeing the Trinity being played out in human relationships. Not the same oneness that's in the Trinity, not saying that, but rather an echo of that, a reflection of that.
1: Yeah, and Timothy, it seems like when people hear or when people say God is love, that's not what they're thinking. They don't have in mind anything really close to what Augustine is saying there. Like, I'm wondering, so... I know this is a rabbit trail that you might edit out, but it just made me think, how have you seen in your ministry over the years, how have you seen people, what are kind of the common misunderstandings, misuses, misapplications of that first John reality that God
0: is love? I think one of the first ways that people twist that sometimes without even meaning to, is even though it says God is love, they change it to mean love is God. And I think it's one of the ways we see that. And they, they may not literally do that, but they do it functionally of rather than letting God define what the nature of love is, they want their experience of love to define the nature of who God is, and you see that in ways that that seem good anyway, even though they aren 't because they just want to here 's what I feel, I want to extrapolate that out really big, and that must be what God feels that type of an idea there I feel love in this in this way, in this context, in this sense, therefore God must be okay with that and feel that at a much larger level. The other one is is in a negative way of sometimes. I have been abused. I have been hurt. Things have gone poorly in my love. Therefore, I'm trying to define God by my negative experiences of love. And so I think that's some of the ways that people distort that, that they end up misunderstanding that. When people view love itself as the power or as the goal instead of seeing God Himself as the power and the goal. And so, what we've got to do is recognize that love itself is not the power. The power of love is in God. That's what we have to see. The power of love is in the place where the nature of love comes from, which is in the triune. God. And that's what we as Christians have to recognize whenever we think about the power of love. And, and this recognition, it helps us in at least a couple of ways. And one of them is, first off, it helps us not to overestimate what love can do. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes Super we think, important. if I just love somebody, it will all come out okay. If I just love somebody enough, and this is a dangerous thing and it's a dangerous thing. You have seen us as a pastor, a girl, a young woman who is in love with an abusive man. And she says, if I just love him enough, he's going to come around and say, no, 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 no. You're thinking there's power in love itself that changes. <laughs> and love itself just can't accomplish that. You're putting a burden on love that love can never fulfill. And love can never accomplish that. And I saw when we adopted our children, all of our children were adopted older and from extremely painful and difficult situations. And one of the things that well-meaning people said over and over is, well, once they get in your home and you love them enough, all that is going to go away. All their behaviors, all their struggles are just going to go away because they'll know you love them. It's like, no, that's that's not how love works. And and sometimes we put this burden on love that love just can't hold. Love can't bear it. Love doesn't do that. But what we're doing in that, we're putting the power in love itself as if love itself can accomplish this. And if if love is a
1: feeling, which is is the understanding that most people operate with, feelings come and go. They ebb and flow. They are... <laughs> By their very definition, nature, it is a roller coaster. And so if the power is in love, then when you hit those valleys, right, then you think, well, oh, the love's gone, right? The power's gone, the love's gone, and you kind of, you give up on whatever the object of of your love was. I mean, this is an explanation for kind of our astronomical divorce rates over the last four decades, right? Because of our misunderstanding of love, what it is, and where the power is is located.
0: But another thing that this does, if we recognize that the power is not in love itself, it helps us to recognize how love can be distorted, how something can be love- But it's derived from God, and it can be distorted. And just because it's derived from God doesn't mean every expression of it is right and good. And this helps, I mean, just in our contemporary context, Christians struggle to explain and to respond to the statement, love is love. And, of course— Love is love is a statement of if somebody is transgender or somebody is homosexual, that their love relationship is no different than any other love. Love is love. It's this declaration of that all loves are equal. Let's just say, first off, nobody really believes that (laughs) they may say that, but nobody really believes all loves are equal. They're going to find some love that they're like, no, that's not, that's not the right one. But even if we put that aside, Love, what we've got to recognize is love can be distorted. Not every expression of love is a godly expression of love. And the problem is Christians often don't see this, especially when they see homosexual persons among their friends, among their family, and they show love to each other. And they're like, that looks real to me. That looks loving to me. Who am I to question it? And because it looks real, because it looks like love— I can't question it. And here's the thing. It is real. (laughs) There is a reality to that that is derived from God. But just because there is a reality there that's derived from God doesn't mean it's being practiced in a godly way. And that's what we have to be able to recognize. And this is where Augustine really helps us with this notion of sin as privation.
1: Yeah. What Augustine talks about here when he talks about sin is, right, he says sin, evil, it's a parasite, right? It can't exist without good because sin isn't a thing. It's not a substance, right? It doesn't have existence. What it does, sin takes something good and it distorts it. It twists it. It mars the goodness. Just like we are created in God's image, God calls humans, calls all of creation good. And then Genesis 3, God didn't hit the reset button because at our core, we still are God's good creation. But because of of sin, everything is twisted, distorted, including our emotions and feelings, our affections, but good's still in there. God didn't suddenly become wrong. He declares creation good. And then Genesis 3 happens and he's like, oh, well, never mind. None of it's good anymore. The good's still there by virtue of us being God's creation. He can't create otherwise. It's twisted. It's defective, injured, wounded, sick, right? There's been a host of metaphors and descriptions over the years, but it's still there. And in fact, that's because sin twists the good creation of God. That's why sin's so attractive. That's how Satan deceives Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Like if if Satan comes in and he goes like full tilt, comes to Adam and Eve and and he's like, listen, that God dude, that dude is whack. That's bad news. He's no good. He's all wrong. Like if he just comes hard at Adam and Eve, then I don't think Genesis 3 happens, right? I don't think he... Deceives them, but what he does is he takes the good things of God and convinces them, "Hey, here are these good things, and there's some goodness. There's some goodness that you're missing out on." And even convinces them or sows seeds of doubt that God for is is even withholding some goodness. Well, surely God would want us to have all the goodness that He has for us, and and so He twists and deceives. And that's what Satan does, and that's why He's so good at sowing these seeds of doubt. He puts these hooks in the water and just waits for us to, to bite. And that's sin. That's that's how sin works. And
0: it works really well, unfortunately. If evil could be presented to us in its essence, now it can't because as we've said, evil doesn't have this essence or substance apart from good. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. Rather, evil is a distortion of the good if it could be presented though to us as it really is we would never desire it but it's presented to us in a way that's entangled with what is beautiful and good and it presents itself as if the way it's giving you the beautiful and the good is actually better is actually more good it presents itself to us in that way and when we understand that love can be distorted in this way and love is distorted in this way And we recognize that even in perversions of love, there is entangled in there some filaments, some components of God's original good design. It helps us to understand why we can look at a a relationship that we know is an ungodly relationship. And yet, at the same time, we can see, wow, there's some elements in there that are Are loving that are in that in spite of that. And we have to be able to do that to be able to critique, to engage, to call people to repentance. We have to be able to do that. We have to simultaneously see, okay, there are things that are beautiful and good that they are longing for that may be fulfilled in that. But just because there are doesn't mean that it's all good, (laughs) It doesn't mean that because it is something where that has been distorted. And so what we see is, is, yeah, there's power in love, but this power is destructive when it's separated from the source of that power. That's what we're seeing in this. And so when we see somebody in a homosexual relationship, and and there have been ways Christians have, have been hateful and awful toward homosexual persons and transgender persons, and there's no level at which we're saying that's excusable. But we are saying we have to call sin what is sin. And we have to recognize that. And when we have this whole notion in our culture of love is love, all love is the same, we have to be able to say, no, actually, not all love is the
1: same.
0: When it comes to love, Christianity also in some sense introduced to the world something radical that does show up in Huey Lewis's song and that's the notion also of love that is offered freely a freely offered love a don't take money gratuitous love exactly right. right. do not take says. money don't money don't take, fame. don't take fame don't need no credit card to ride this train yeah.
1: yeah that's the line that always first comes to mind if this song pops up in my head that's the line.
0: I want to suggest something. Huey Lewis would never have sung those words had Christianity not been introduced into the world. And in fact, they actually echo a – gospel-influenced song from Curtis Mayfield called People Get Ready. So this notion of you don't need a credit card to ride this train, this is in some sense a paraphrase of this gospel-infused song from Curtis Mayfield from many years earlier where it said, people get ready. There's a train that's coming. Don't need no ticket. You just thank the Lord. All you need is faith. This beautiful song, one of my favorite songs, People Get Ready by Curtis Mayfield. And it's this song that is about the gospel, really, about the free offer of the gospel. And it uses this. Well, this the song Power of Love echoes that. You don't need no credit card to ride this train. <laughs> you see it really clearly right there. It's love as a free gift. And you see in this, this is what we all long for and it's only available through the gospel. It is only available to us through the gospel. This is something that Jesus Christ and his apostles introduce into the world. This notion of a transcendent love that is given freely. Love exists because the Trinity is. It's the Trinity where love begins. And that love that is in the Trinity through Jesus Christ is offered freely freely. To us, and it's offered in such a way that we don't need no credit card to ride this train. Yeah. So you're the big Huey Lewis fan
1: here. (laughs) You think Huey gets that? There's some truths that show up in his statements, but you also have other lines. You know, he talks about, right, how strong it can be, but it can also be cruel sometimes, it's tougher than diamonds stronger than steel. He also has this one line, with a little help from above, you feel the power and love, right? So there's, which, right, we would say, well, it's more than a little help. (laughs) But yeah, he has these nuggets of truth in there. So yeah, just wondering where you think he, he lands
0: in really getting it. Yeah, I think Huey Lewis, he refers to God once in a while, such as in that song. But really, ultimately, his religion is what I would call an optimistic folk deism. <laughs> he believes in a God. It's very clear that he does believe in a God but not a personal God and not a God who's involved in your life. One of the few times he actually explicitly talks about religion at all in his songs is in the song Jacob's Ladder, which he didn't actually write that song that was written by Bruce Hornsby, but nonetheless, it speaks against television evangelists, which that was a very frequent theme in some of the songs in the 1980s. We see that in everything from U2 to Huey Lewis to others speaking against television evangelists, but you really have very little explicit reference to anything religious. And today, he's a, an avid fly fisherman, lives in a ranch in Montana. And part of his motive in fly fishing, he says, is to get close to God. And you kind of see this optimistic folk deism in, in what he says about that. He says, I'm not a conventionally religious person. I believe the closest I ever get to God is through Mother Nature. And you see it right there. Yeah,
1: so he has a little mix of pantheism in there, right? God is weaved into his creation or, or creation, nature, right? I, I think he would say specifically nature, kind of this uncivilized, still, pristine creation is imbued with God. It, nature is divine,
0: almost. It's got a hints of both of those. It does. It does, really. There's a little bit of pantheism, a little bit of deism, but he's definitely not in any way open to even being transformed by God. I read a recent interview of him and he was in a park during the interview. And as the interview ended, he got up from the park bench and realized he'd been sitting on a a gospel tract the whole time he was there. And, and the interviewer said he picked it up, laughed and said, let him let God work on somebody who might show a little improvement. (laughs) That's just kind of, he just is who he is. The things that are charming about him also seem to be the things that stand in the way of, of him recognizing the reality of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and of authentic love. Let God work on somebody he will show a little improvement. I just am who I am. And for somebody who's saying so much about faithful love, his own faithful love didn't go so well. His marriage that he got married in 1983 lasted about six years until 1989. And yet with Huey Lewis, you just have this sense of optimism that, as we've said before, you can't help but like the guy. He was recently diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which makes him unable to hear the music. Like He can't hear the music at the accurate pitch anymore to be able to sing. And so you think about it, his career's over in some sense. He is unable at this point to be able to do what he has done his whole life, And yet his attitude, he said at first, he was really just devastated by this. And yet he says, now, here's what I think. He says, this could have happened years earlier. (laughs) That's his attitude. It could have happened earlier. It could have happened earlier in my life. And I would have never been able to be a musical artist at all. It's happened now at the end of my career and just rolling with it at that point. And there's this optimism that is appealing. There's this optimism that almost is on the verge of him believing that there's some greater power at work. And yet once again, he really doesn't seem to show any interest in that greater power as it's known to us through the gospel and through Jesus Christ. And yet faithful love still persists as one of the key themes in his music. Yep.
1: He says some accurate things about the power of love. And the irony of it is, is, you know, when he makes comments like, let God work on someone who might show a little improvement. In that statement, he's revealing that he doesn't get the power of love, which he speaks of. I mean, even throughout the song, he recognizes over and over the power of love to change, to transform. But when you only consider it at the human level... Then you're robbing the true power that love has love f- from and to a specific person. The reality is, is that if Huey Lewis bought in, right? If he leaned in to this god and the, the love that comes from him, then then you'd discover the true power of love and real transformation. Thank
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting The Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug.
1: To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com.
0: Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast.
1: From you keeps me wrong.